there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Shouldn't you be at work? When the seagulls follow the trawler, it's because they think sardines will be thrown into the sea. I will love it if we beat them. Love it. I'll have a low-fat pizza or something like that, or a few biscuits and some milk on a Sunday. And you can pair up if you like, and you can fucking pick someone else to help you, and you can bring your fucking dinner. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Only oh, oh, No! Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin, Will He Score? I'm Chris Skoll, and we've got an injury-ravaged squad today. Before we get on to that, here's today's intro. It's courtesy of Daniel Fell, who says, Mind how you go, Tor Andre Flo. Joining me today, a very poorly Ellis James. Hello there. I'm fine. I'm one of those I'm one of those players who's willing to play through the pain barrier. I remember and I'm so annoyed that I can't remember who this was and I might have to do a quick uh, tap and Google as Chris is speaking. Um even though that's quite annoying so I guess picked up on the microphone. Steve Bruce talking about some player who he kept saying when he was manager of Birmingham City, he kept saying, Ah, oh, he's old school. He's old school like he he played with a broken knee, but he didn't come off because he knew we'd used all of our subs. So the last 25 minutes, he had a broken knee, and he knew it was a broken knee, but he just carried on. To me, that's old school. You know, you, you don't get that anymore, do you? To me, that's old school. I love the old school attitude to uh, attitude, um, to injuries. Best example, Dave Mackay. So hard, he broke his leg and snapped on, stamped on it to ensure it was a clean break. Dave McKay would have made the this, maniac's uh, choice. this recording for the top of the Chris Coleman episode. That's all I'm saying. I'll tell you who else would have made it. Bert Troutman. He'd be here right now recording <laughs> with us with a broken neck. Yes. In an old school attitude to injuries. What I love about the Bert Troutman clip is that he dives at the feet of like 1950s strikers when you were allowed to just sort of kick a goalkeeper into the net and the, the goal would stand. Uh, he gets up and he just very gingerly rubs his neck. And you could see him puffing out his cheeks. Oh, that's, that's going to need a plaster, that. <laughs> oh, oh, oh I, think my, I think my glands are up, actually. I think that's what it is, my glands Another are up. Another one, Stuart Pearce broke his leg while playing for West Ham. Tried to come back on after the fails in physio and had a look at it. It's like, come on, let me yeah. back on. You've got a broken leg, leg psycho. Yeah. There's a bit in his uh, book when, as a kid, he breaks his leg playing for like a youth team, and then his youth team... Are playing in Liverpool, and he gets he gets crunched in the first ten minutes. And he's walking a bit gingerly on it, and all the scousers who are watching are calling him like a s- soft southerner. <laughs> and then he realises that he's broken his leg. 
<laughs> he's been walking around with a broken leg for a week. Oh dear. I, apart from when it comes to introducing and recording introductions and tops and tails to podcasts, I don't have an old school <laughs> attitude. Very much the new school. Injuries. The new school. <laughs> the new school of putting of my diving. hands in, of waving di- at the physio, <laughs> waving at the physio, saying, I, "I've got to come off." I've got to come off. You've grazed your knee, Ellis. No, so get me off. For, get the, me off. <laughs> for the benefit of my own career, I have to come off. Yeah, so, I mean, we've had a hell of a day of it. An injury-ravaged squad. Very much shades of Middlesbrough, November 1996, calling off games. But no Michael. We've had to cancel on Dean Saunders this morning. Ellis has made it for the top of this correspondence. But in the Chris Coleman episode itself, we're all fully fit. And at the end of this episode, yeah. you'll come back to us slightly in the future, all injury-ravaged. Yes, an awful lot happened since we spoke to Chris Coleman. Which, incidentally, thank you very much for allowing me to do that. It was one of the best hours of my life, I think. How good is this and how excited were you? He's such great company. He's such great company. I know that, you know, there's a school of thought, isn't there? They're on podcasts. They're holding truth to power. We're meant to be journalists. I am the least impartial football (laughs) presenter slash journalist slash podcaster you can imagine. And... I don't ask Chris any difficult questions, but my God, he's entertaining. It's great fun. <laughs> well, look, we're going to take it easy on you, Ellis. Chris Coleman's coming up, but before that, should we have a tiny bit of correspondence? Yes, please. I'm Jim Rosenthal, and this is the Electronic Postbag. You've got mail. OK, this email comes from Ifan George. OK, there's a clue. He says, hi, guys, love the pod. Is that blah, IFAN? Blah, blah, blah. I-F-A-N, yeah. That's Ivan, then. Ivan, Welsh I'm glad you're here. Because the Welsh letter F is a V, and the Welsh letter double F is an F. For any fans of the Welsh alphabet, well, you, if you're a fan of the Welsh alphabet, you know that. For any people who aren't fans of the Welsh alphabet, you now know that. There you I go. got hauled over the coals this week for pronouncing Gordon Dalzell. It's, the correct pronunciation is Gordon D.L., did you know this? Yes, there was uh, the. Um, the was, ni- DL, was it DL and Pasco? I thought yeah, it was Dalzell. So I was going to say, I only know that because it was a 1990s detective drama <laughs> called DL and Pasco. I've also been calling it Dalzell and Pasco all this time. No one's picked me up. <laughs> Never mind. You've got such little respect for ITV <laughs> common, um, you know, detective dramas. And I've been calling it Inspect- Inspector Morsais. <laughs> Inspector Mess. Poirot. <laughs> it's Poirot, isn't it? Uh, just an aside, who was it who played Poirot? David uh, Suchet. David Suchet. Suchet in your world. <laughs> yes, it was Suchet in New Money. Um, one of my mates had a car crash, and one of the witnesses was David Suchet. And uh, it, wow. there was like an investigation, and, and so Poirot had to take the stand as a witness for my mate's car crash. No, how <laughs> is that not a tabloid news story? This is my mate's That's number one story. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. When, I when listen else? to this podcast when I'm not on it. You must have talked about that before. I don't remember this. How is that not something you would put conversations with? It's never come with? up, has it? Never come up. There you David go. David Poirot was a witness. <laughs> for my mate's traffic accident. I should add my mate was the victim, just to be clear. This is... Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, how good is that? Um, there must have been titters in the courtroom. <laughs> <laughs> Where <laughs> bloody Poirot <laughs> got up? Right to the stand. He's a reliable witness. He's <laughs> the <Poirot>. most reliable. <laughs> um, right. Ifan, he says, I both love and hate this in equal measure, but I'm still not convinced Kevin Keegan was present in this town. And he's sent me a link to the Western Telegraph. Okay, do you read the Western Telegraph? Oh, that's the newspaper in Pembrokeshire. I've been in the Western Telegraph. 
Have you? Because I was born in Ufford West, so occasionally if you read out in church, like as a sort of eight-year-old, your name was mentioned in the uh, Western Telegraph. So it is, it's a newspaper I've been... I've graced okay. the hallowed pages of the Western Telegraph. Well, i tell you who else has graced the pages. Kevin Keegan. And Ifan has, has kindly sent this on to us because he says how they've basically stretched a rumour out into a full article. Oh, now, yes. I'm, on the, I'm showing you now the Western Telegraph website. This, this article is tagged with celebrities and Cardigan. And the headline is, yeah. Football legend Kevin Keegan's surprise visit to Cardigan. Cardigan Tell me Little Town, otherwise known as Abertavi, and it's where my sister used to do ballet. So I am absolutely <laughs> thrilled that Kevin Keegan has apparently well, been there. 70, this is the article. 70s football legend Kevin Keegan showed the type of elusive skills that won him such renown on the pitch by showing autograph hunters a clean pair of heels during a surprise visit to Cardigan on Friday. What, he dribbled past them? <laughs> Reports on social media claimed the former England head coach had been spotted at Well Pharmacy in Pendre. Am I getting that right? Pendre, yeah. And also at the Guild Hall, but photographic evidence remained tantalisingly elusive. Oh, that's weak. Seeking recommendations for a good local restaurant. Mr Keegan is said to have told well-wishers he would love it if someone could point him and his family towards a decent Italian eatery. <laughs> Sensing the possibility of snatching a late winner, the Tivy side appeared to have tracked the silver-haired maestro down the to... The Tivy side, yeah. Oh, the Tivy side. Appeared to have tracked the silver-haired maestro down to an acclaimed Italian restaurant, Manucci's, on Grosvenor Hill, but staff there were remaining tight-lipped. I can't say exactly who was dining with us, said a spokesman, but I know there was definitely a family from Cheshire there. And also, there were two other high-profile guests dining with us on Friday evening, which isn't unusual, as we've had many celebrities dine with us since opening in March. But we do respect their privacy enough not to disclose it on social media. Keegan won, Tiffyside nil. Interesting, that, Because usually... I come from West Wales, but if you go into a, say, a Chinese restaurant in any of the small towns in West Wales, there will usually be a picture of Mike Reed. There might be a picture of Nicholas <laughs> Lindhurst. Which one? Frank Butcher? Or uh, Frank Butcher. There'll yeah, be a yeah, picture good, of good. Um, Nicholas Lindhurst. There might be a picture of... Um, oh, uh, like Pam St. Clement. Someone like that. Those kind of people. Yeah. yeah. And they they had a Chinese there in 1987 when they were on the way to Tenby or something, and the the the, the proprietor thought to, thought to themselves, okay, well we need a we need photographic evidence of this, because it immediately gives the Chinese restaurant cachet. The idea that the Tivy side would think, no, we're going to respect Keegan, Keegan's <laughs> privacy, and then word will get around celebrity land. <laughs> That actually, we're like Claridge's, we're like the Ivy. People will be coming to Abertavy or Cardigan for their meals because they know they won't get hassle. They're kind of playing the long game there, aren't they? Yeah. I admire but this that. time next week, Elton John will be down there. <laughs> <laughs> the Ivy will be closing its doors in no time. I, really, I like Abertavy or Cardigan. I went, um, I went to a funeral there a couple of years ago and it was a funeral of, a, of quite a famous person in the town. And I was late... People could, because of, of the way I was dressed, people could, could work out, or people had established that I was on the way to the funeral, so I was running through the town. But I didn't, I didn't know where the church was, because I, I don't know the town brilliantly. Like, I've never lived there. But uh, people were coming out of shops going, It's up the road and to your left! <laughs> it starts at midday, you've got six minutes! It's like a, a sad bit in a Richard Curtis film. <laughs> 
Eric! And you burst in and it's actually someone's wedding. Wrong oh, church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah there you go. Uh, brilliant. Do keep your emails coming in. If you want to get in touch with the show, here's how. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin and sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. All right, Chris Coleman is coming up. If you want some extra subscriber content to this interview, where does he get the nickname Cookie from? Maybe a little more on Mohammed Al-Fayed. You can join the Quickly Kevin fan club by signing up on your Apple podcast app and by going to anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin. Two bonus episodes every month, extended versions of every episode, all that good stuff. Right, here he is. Ellis's favourite. I need to say the Al-Fayed stuff is incredible. So if you're not if it's if you're not a subscriber, you've got to change you've got to change that because the Al-Fayed stuff is elite top draw stuff. Here he comes. Quickly Kevin meets Chris Coleman. Our guest this week was an accomplished defender who played 160 league games for his hometown club Swansea City before joining Crystal Palace in 1991 where he went on to be selected in the club's centenary 11 of greatest players from their first 100 years. Spells with Blackburn and Fulham followed across a career that included 32 caps for his country, Wales. It's a pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin. Ellis is very excited. It's Chris Coleman. <laughs> Hello, guys. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? I'm very good. I'm going to get it out there right at the start. <laughs> Thank you for giving me the best birth of my life. And yeah, it's this is going to be the easiest interview you've ever done in your life because there's going to be no questions to try and catch you out. It's just going to be an hour of stroking your ego and then we're all going to go home. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to do that. I love you. I'll put, I'll, put it I'll put that out the early doors. I'm in love with you. Can you just send my wife a couple of those lines? Because maybe she's, <laughs> she's not using the same vocabulary as you are, maybe in relation to me, you know. Do you ever have to buy a drink in Wales, Chris? Do you know what? Because we, well, I've been, I was in Greece for two years and I, we live in Winchester. So I go back to see my mother and my sisters and my, I've still got my best friends there. 2016, now that are all kicked off. But it's still like, I get like people coming up, which is really nice. And because it was such a big thing for us, as you know, as Welsh people and the Welsh nation. And I don't think it'll ever be forgotten. And we just, it doesn't matter how many times it happens to me. I just fall straight back into it. And I'm honestly, I could sit there and talk to anybody all night about that situation because it's such happy memories. And I still get a lovely welcome here. Does it ever get boring? Because <laughs> Gareth Edwards is asked about 70s rugby every day of his life. And he answers those questions with the same enthusiasm that he did in like 1973 when he's asked about the Barbarians try whatever. When anyone goes up to you and says, talk to me about beating Russia 3-0 in Toulouse, does your heart sink? Are you like, no, this is great. I love talking about this. <laughs> well, to be honest, Ellis, right, if I'm out with my friends having a beer and I'm, I'm not getting any attention, I walk over to people and say, can I just tell you what happened? <laughs> Can I just start this conversation? <laughs> oh, it never gets boring and I could talk about it all day. I really could. I was just super, super lucky to to be in a part of it at that time, I think. Yeah. I'll start with a more boring football question then. Well, not more boring, but slightly more serious. Because you were part of a Welsh team that had Ian Rushnit and Mark Hughes and Dean Saunders and Neville Southall and Ryan Giggs 
and Gary Speed, really, really top players. And that team failed to qualify for several tournaments. When you had Bale, obviously, and Ramsey and Allen and Ashley Williams and a lot of other players, clearly a core of very talented players and two superstars, really, in Bale and Ramsey, did the teams you played in, did that inform the way you managed the team that you were looking after? Or did you ever think back to those teams that failed to qualify and think, well, what were they doing wrong that we can put right? I think the, and through no fault of the the managers at the time, because we had two or three different managers, I think it was just our preparation. And that was down to us as players, because in fairness to us in those days, you played hard, partied hard. Yeah. So our preparation wasn't always where it needed to be and where it should have been. But at the same time, the way we prepared also harnessed an incredible team spirit. You know, when we just missed out with Terry Orth when we, we lost the Romania game, but building up to that moment, four or five years of, it was just an amazing experience to be with that Welsh team because the team spirit was incredible, the way we prepared. And Terry was a disciplinarian when he was with Swansea. He was my first manager and I loved him. And I got a lot, hell of a lot to thank Terry Orth for. He took a big chance on me and he really moulded me and shaped me as a young 17-year-old. He gave you your debut for Swansea and for Wales. Yes, he did. Yeah, I was 17 for Swansea, just turned 17. And he gave me my debut and, and then he gave me my debut for Wales. Because I'd come back from Manchester City as a, I was 16 and I was homesick. So I said to my parents, I'm not going back. I hated Manchester. And the club was too big for me. And I was I was surrounded by players at the time. They were amazing. Some of these Man City young players, David White, Andy Inchcliffe, Paul Molden, Darren Beckford, Jason Beckford. There's a lad called Paul Lake who retired early, was probably the best. Oh, yeah, the goal scorer. That was Paul Molden was the goal scorer. Paul Lake, I've still never seen anything like him as a teenage football player. He was an amazing football player. And he, and he retired early with a knee injury, Paul. But Man City at the time had a pool of players. And I remember thinking, I'm never, ever going to be anywhere near these guys. They're so good. And I was desperately homesick. So I ended up going back to Swansea and... I was in limbo, really, because Manchester City wouldn't release my contract. They wanted me to stay. I wouldn't go back. Luckily, Terry Orrath spoke with Manchester City. They did the deal for me to go to Swansea. I actually went on trial at the start, and then Terry gave me a, in them days, it was a white TS contract. But then I was only there for six months, and he gave me my chance in the first team, thankfully for me. So I got a hell of a lot to thank Terry Orrath for. It was the Wales team. He was different, I think, because... Alice just mentioned Ian Rush, Neville Southwold. I mean, these were superstars in the day, world-class players. Yeah. And Ted managed Wales differently than the way he managed Swansea. And I think that's a, it's a big, big feather in his cap because he saw what he needed to do with Wales. And that's what he did. And he just, he gave a lot of, a lot of responsibility to the changing room, to the senior players that I just mentioned. And basically they ran the changing room, but they were brilliant. And the teams, but it was excellent. We missed out to Romania that'll haunt us forever. Yeah. When I became the manager, the players is a different generation, just did things differently, prepared differently. The whole football training scene was completely different to 20 years earlier. So, and they were already being labeled as the golden generation, the Joe Allens and the Ramseys and the Bales. And, the, and I, I always used to fight against that at the start because I thought they could go on and prove to be the best team we've ever had, but they hadn't done that yet. And I wanted them to go and do that. We would only do that by qualifying, I suppose, because we'd never done it. So I was kind of different probably with our players when I was a manager than when I was a player 
and the way we did things for Wales, it was pretty much chalk and cheese, really. So you went back to Swansea in 1987. The Vetch is such an iconic stadium, but I wondered what were like the training facilities like? What were you training on? What were the pitch? What were the facilities? At the end times, Chris, we trained basically anywhere we could get. We didn't have a training pitch. We didn't have a, like a training centre. We basically said, where are we training this morning? And Terry would say, okay, I've had a chat with the groundsman over in Landarcy in Swansea. So we drive over there and we train there. The next morning, Gaffer, where are we training? We're up the Mova Stadium today training. And then we train there. Next day, where are we training? We're down in Fairwood. Wherever we could get a bit of grass, we'd go and train. And it was literally, I mean, the training kit. A lot of times there wasn't enough to go around and <laughs> one or two of the lads would be training in their own socks, not football socks, like the socks that they'd wore into the to the training <laughs> that day. Because the socks, there wasn't enough pairs of socks to go. It was incredible, really. But when I think back, I got nothing but fond memories. We, we had nothing. There was no money in football, not where we were. It was just the honour of playing professional football. And especially if he was a Swansea boy playing for Swansea, growing up as a Swansea boy, that was the biggest honour next to playing for Wales that I ever got. But yeah, we didn't have a training ground, Chris, is the honest answer to you. When you're talking <laughs> about that. the lack of training ground, I remember talking to Alan Curtis, who played for the Swans you know, in the early 80s, and he was saying that he used to train behind the North Bank, just play games behind the North Bank. Yeah, we did that sometimes behind the North Bank. We can't, he'd say, right, we're behind the North Bank because we can't get anywhere this morning and we'd have a fire side on the concrete behind the North Bank. It was always like that time where it was right like somebody kicked the ball and go into the toilets. <laughs> Voted the worst toilets in the football league as well. So you wouldn't want to play with that ball again. Oh, well, yeah. Listen, I've been in there once or twice and listen, it deserved that vote. And then of course you bring the ball out of the toilets. Nobody wanted to edit. You know what I mean? He was like... <laughs> so, but those, he just got on with it. That's just the way it was, you know. A warm-up was up and down the terrace of the North Bank. Yeah. 10 times up and down the terrace and then round the back for five a side on the concrete. <laughs> on the concrete? It was great. It was great. <laughs> well, Kurt told me that they would play England versus Wales five a side round the back of the North Bank on the concrete between the terrace itself and the turnstiles. And they might not have been in those days, but sort of by the end, before we moved to the Liberty, there was like the Mel Nurse bar was back there. But there was like broken glass on the floor and all sorts of stuff. And Kurt said, because it was England versus Wales, we were all really competitive. So we were doing sliding tackles on the concrete <laughs> and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> it's unbelievable. <laughs> you were at the club by about 87. Yeah. Five years previously, we'd come sixth in the first division, having been top until March. Did you feel like you were joining the club five years too late? No. Do you know what, Alice? In all honesty, I was just so happy to be joining the club and then when I broke into the first team's dream come true and it it wouldn't have mattered if if they were playing in the in the local public it was Swansea City I'd been standing on that very terrace the North Bank watching them in those days yeah when Curtis Robbie James my favourite players you know Dudley Lewis Nigel Stevenson all the Wyndham Evans all like the homegrown boys. I was speaking to Nigel Stevenson about six months ago. Terrific boy, great boy, Nigel. I used to love him. When I joined Swansea, he was still there, Nigel. Dudley Lewis also, I worshipped them. And then when I was sharing the dressing with them, for me, it was a dream come true. I'd watched them, you know, from the late 70s to the early 80s when they had that run. When the bus went around Swansea, when they got promotion, it was the first division, then now it's the Premier League. Yeah. They beat Preston. 
me and my best mate Buggy, he's still my best mate, he's best man at my wedding. We were following the bus and John Toshak saw me because I played in Swansea Schoolboys under 11s with his son Cameron. Oh, yeah. So John Toshak saw me and he stopped the bus and he called me onto the bus. No! Wow. Yeah, as a young boy, you can imagine what that did, yeah. It was a pretty amazing feeling, that. The other weird thing about those early years with Swansea, you're in the third tier of English football, but you win the Welsh Cup a couple of times. So that means in 1989, you qualify for the Cup Winners' Cup, you play Panathinaikos. And then a couple of years later, you're taking on Monaco, Arsene Wenger, George Weyer, Yuri Durkaev. So you've got this, on one hand, you're in the third tier of English football, kicking footballs into the worst toilets in the league systems. Then you're in (laughs) Monaco. How was that as an experience? Well, I was there for Panathinaikos, but when they played Monaco, I'd already moved to Palace. So I missed Monaco. Panathinaikos' experience was just incredible. It was incredible. Playing in... In Europe, we played in the Olympic Stadium there, and I think we played there in August. It was boiling hot. There was like sixty thousand people, and they went three 0 up, and we were all like going, "Oh, come on, for Christ's sake, we can't be losing six or seven. You know, it's trying to nick a goal or something." We ended up scoring two goals late. We lost three two. So we brought them back to the vetch, and it was car. It was amazing. It was apps. And to be fair to the Panathinaikos supporters. There was thousands of them at the veg, and it was an amazing atmosphere. And we ended up thinking three, three, three. But that whole European experience, like for me, I was only twenty, I think nineteen or twenty, was unbelievable. It was unbelievable experience. It really was European football. And because, like, what you've touched on as well, bearing in mind we were okay, probably then the facilities had improved a little bit, but just a couple of years earlier, we were training behind the North Bank and we didn't have enough training kit to go around, you know, and it was that that difficult for the club financially at the time where they nearly went out of business. So then to be playing European football was special. Yeah, it was amazing. There's a very funny picture, which I cannot find on the internet, of Doug Sharp, who was the chairman at the time, I think he ran a building firm, something like that. He did. Yeah, yeah. Sharp and Ed. <laughs> you know, he wasn't a rich man by, like, <laughs> football owner standards. But there's a picture of him and, like, Prince Rainier. On what planet do they two know each other? <laughs> Next to, like, a tray of sandwiches at the fish. <laughs> oh, it's just so funny. Because Merth had, had beaten Atlanta in 1987. I remember that, yeah. Newport County had got to the quarterfinals of the Cupners Cup in about 81. The Welsh clubs, the, the Welsh clubs who won the Welsh Cup, were able to go on these amazing European Cupners Cup journeys. Like Cardiff yeah. City beat Real Madrid. Barry played against Porto, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dynamo Kiev as well. They had some really good results, Barry Town. Yeah, it was amazing. I think it was great for the Welsh. I mean, Merthyr, what Merthyr did against Atlanta, I mean, Merthyr had a really good team, really good. Yeah. The striker, Di Webley, was an excellent player. Because well, we played him in the Welsh a couple of times and he, I remember him ripping up me and Andrew Melville and he was a really good player. Yeah. He should have played professionally, Di Webley. He was an excellent player. He really was. But what they did against Atlanta and with that whole experience, really, like, I think, give everybody a taste for it as well, you know. Well, they were the first British team to play an Italian team since Heistel. Because the Welsh clubs were still allowed into Europe, but obviously the English clubs were banned because of Heysel. 
So they played Atalanta. If I think I'm right in saying this, if Napoli hadn't won the league, they'd have played Napoli and Maradona wow. would have been at Penetar and Paul. Oh, what a shame. I mean, what? It's an absolute tragedy that that didn't happen. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Me and Andrew Melville were big friends with Ronnie Walton, who was at Swansea for probably 10 years, Ronnie, Teddy August's assistant, and he was a reserve team coach. And, Loved his cricket and he was always a part of the Hoover, the works there. And he invited me and Andrew Melville up to Mirtha once. And I got to tell you, it was an experience I will never, ever forget for the rest of my life. It's Penadaran Park is one of my favourite football grounds in Britain, I think. Because it's like a micro version of the Vetch of Swansea's old ground. Yeah. It looks like a proper football ground, you know, sort of great terracing and everything. It's a great place to watch football. Difficult place to play football, I'll tell you that. Yes, I can imagine, yeah. I went to watch the Swans play Merthyr in a pre-season friendly once. Because Cardiff at the Bob Bank, Swansea at the North Bank, and Merthyr at the Wank Bank, right? So I was stood on the... Uh, <laughs> I was standing on the Wank Bank watching the game, and I looked down, and there was a pigeon, but it had been decapitated next to me. <laughs> I thought, wow. <laughs> you don't get that at the Emirates, do you? <laughs> Every time we played there, there was always a woman in the tunnel. She always used to say, Coleman, Coleman, as I was coming out. Coleman, Coleman, and I wouldn't lock. And every time I'd lock, she'd say, you're a wanker. (laughs) (laughs) Every time we played there, same bloody woman. Even if I glanced in her direction, you're a wanker. (laughs) I don't know who she was, but she didn't like me. I want to ask a bit more about the Vetch because it's such an iconic ground. I've read that, Chris, you described the derbies between Cardiff and Swansea. You said once that you could smell the hatred at the Vetch. And that (laughs) before those Swansea-Cardiff derbies, you couldn't sleep. What was the atmosphere like at the Vetch on days like that? I remember playing one game, right, Chris? Me and Andy Melville always used to pick me up. He lived about a mile away from me, Melv. I lived in Mayle. He lived in town. And he used to pick me up. We were on the way. We were playing Cardiff. Driving along the front, there was the Cardiff bad boys and the Swansea bad boys, and they were running into the sea, trying to get away from each other. There was people fighting over cars. There was cars overturned. And it was 11.30 kickoff in the morning. (laughs) So this was about 9 o'clock in the morning. I remember thinking, what? Jesus. I remember saying to Marvel, he said, look, keep your head down, because we couldn't park outside. There was no car park outside. And you remember the players' entrance was between two houses. It's still there, actually. Yeah. Yeah. We had to park away and then walk. And me and Mal were like trying to keep our head down because we thought if we bump into any of the bluebirds there, we're not even going to make it to the game, you know. Oh, my God. Glad they hated each other. Hated each other. The atmosphere at the Vetch and when we used to play at Ninian was, it was an amazing atmosphere. It really was. I, I played all around the world. But because you, if you're from Swansea or Cardiff and then you sample that and you know how much it means to both those games, why? Unbelievable. I suppose some players would shrink in those circumstances, wouldn't they? And others puff their chests out. And... Yeah, I've seen it, Ellis, yeah. I never blame them because it's not easy. But other players, you thrive in that. In every moment in that game, you are right on the edge. You can't yeah. make a mistake. You've got to get everything right. You've got to be at least winning as many 50-50 challenges as your opponent. And that sounds like 
me being a dinosaur because all right, football's a bit different now. But in those games, it's still all about that. Sleeves rolled up, it's you against him, whoever he may be, and you can't let him get on top of you. In those games, you know, you can't get anything wrong. So it is a lot of pressure, but the atmosphere is just incredible. So when we played Belgium, for instance, because we played them in qualification for Euro 2016 and then played them at the tournament itself. And we seem to be drawn against Belgium all the time. Like we haven't played France in a competitive game ever. We've only ever played them in friendlies. Yeah. But Belgium, we play every sort of 10 days or so. And I've done for as long <laughs> yeah. as I've been alive. <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne has said quite recently, I'm just bored of playing Wales. We play them all the time. <laughs> He's bored of losing against Wales. That's what he should. Yeah, yeah. So the 1-0 where Gareth scored in Cardiff in qualification for 2016, and then obviously the quarterfinal where we beat them 3-1. Those games, because it's 2016 by this point and football's different, is it just technical stuff you're telling the players? Or does a little bit of the Chris Coleman who played in those derby games in the late 80s come back and say, right then, you need to smash into Fellini? I couldn't even hide that. If I tried it, it just comes up, it comes to the forefront. And it doesn't matter how good you are technically. We can be as technically... um, Look at some of the players we had. Outstanding players, world-class players. But they still had to do the other side of it. They still had to have that passion and they still had to, we still had to get on top of the opponents. We had to do the nasty, dirty stuff. My big thing when we, when I talk over Wales, where I say we're a nice team, but we're not streetwise. Yes. We play against Serbia or Bulgaria or Croatia and winning 1-0 for them, they would do anything they possibly could to hold on to that 1-0. They didn't care what they did. And we just weren't like that mentally. We weren't on that, in that same vibration. And we had to get to that vibration. And in the end, we were, we didn't care how we did it. We didn't always play great football. Sometimes we were a little bit ugly and hard to beat. We did a job against Northern Ireland. We didn't play great, but we did what we needed to do to get over the line. So there was plenty of games where, yeah, it was sleeves rolled up and we were on the verge of, in terms of pushing the rules, overstepping the mark at times. Yeah, we did that. Gamesmanship, yeah, we did that. But we had to do that because first we had to catch up to the teams who were doing better than us. And when we arrived there, when we qualified, it was what we're going to do now to stay here. So pretty much we needed to do what we needed to do. And it was that was the message, you know. People look at all the clips would be of Bale or scoring or Ramsey or some beautiful football. There was another side to our game that we were good at, and that was winning ugly when we needed to. And that was everybody defending, Bale also, in our own half, everybody scrapping, fighting. We had to do that because all the top teams do that. Why shouldn't we do that? So you're saying that Bobby Gould didn't add that to the Welsh national <laughs> philosophy in his time in charge? <laughs> I'm going to pass on that question. Right? <laughs> I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this for Bobby. When he came to Wales, he had success with Wimbledon and Coventry. And I think maybe he underestimated international football a little bit because it's not like domestic football. But he tried his best. He did try his best. And sometimes the results, they don't come. And sometimes you have a clash of personalities. It's happened to me and it's happened to most managers. And of course, there's some great stories about Goldie. But... Now, because I'm a manager myself, I look back and I think maybe in one or two of those moments, I would have tried to help him a bit more than I did. And I'm sure some of the other lads who have gone on to be coaches or managers would say the same as me. Sometimes he didn't help himself, mind, but there were certain situations where we heard them more. But didn't he used to sing the Adams Family theme when he walked into the room, though? <laughs> Is that true? He had an eyebrow, didn't he? He had a massive yeah, yeah. So we used to call him the wolf. But... <laughs> He heard me and Giggsy at the back of the bus once 
calling him a wolf. And he pulled us <laughs> before we went training. He said, no, you two. I hear you calling me a wolf. <laughs> and we're both standing there like idiots. And he said, and I know you call me a wolf because I'm very cunning. And we were like, yeah, yeah that's why we call you a wolf. Dog, yeah. Nothing to do with that eyebrow in the front of me. You know what I mean? But that was Bobby. He had good things as well. He had good things as well. He had a good art. But being a manager myself, it hasn't always worked. And sometimes that's the way it goes. But unfortunately, at the end, <laughs> we were playing away to Italy and we lost 4-1 heavily. It was the last game for him. And he came in and he said, right, guys, I've, I'm going to finish. I've taken you as far as I can. <laughs> Remember Dean Saunders saying, fucking right you are. We were 30th and you arrived and now we're 120th. We can't go <laughs> further. <God. laughs> just like, when I look back, I feel sorry for him. Well, a very young Craig Bellamy <laughs> scored the winner out in Denmark. We beat them 2-1 away and he scored a, with the winner late on. And then we beat Belarus at home. We went back to backs, yeah. Yeah, but everyone is crowding around Bellamy to congratulate him. I think it might be in Craig's book. Apparently, Dean Saunders said to him, you fucking prick, you've kept him in the job for another six months for that call. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> Knowing Dino, yeah. He'd probably come up with something like that. But listen, Dino, like when he, Dino played for Wales, in every game he was, Dino was balls out every game. Oh, yeah. He loved playing for Wales, Dino. And he, he played for Bobby, he ran his socks off for Bobby also, but sometimes it's a clash and it doesn't work. But I do remember those games where Bella scored away to Denmark and then we beat Belarus at home. And all of a sudden the campaign was, because normally what we used to do was come good late and it was too late. We'd win the last couple of games and everybody get excited. But that was pretty early on when people were getting excited. But then I think we went and we lost away to Switzerland. And we lost somewhere to somewhere else and then it went south. But that whole experience, talking about Dino as uh like I mentioned earlier about the whole Terry Orth when he was in charge, that squad, like Dean Saunders was the heartbeat of it all. He was like such a funny lad, you know what I mean? And he was always telling stories. He'd always be coming and telling stories about it was a player called Billy Whitehurst, who's a legendary player. Oh, he's a very hard sort of player. Yeah, yeah. He's a very hard lad, Billy. And so Dean would be telling us stories and we'd all be crowding around Dean and he was the heartbeat of it. And even when Bobby came, that never changed, you know, because Dino loved playing for Wales. I know there's stories about some of the things Dino said in those moments with Bobby. Yeah, I'm not going to deny that some of them things didn't happen, but he still gave his best because it was for Wales, you know, he playing for Wales at the end of the game. And Russian Hughes had retired by that point, so he was kind of carrying the team, really. Dino, yeah. Him and Ryan when Ryan was available. That's right, Ryan just burst on the scene as well. Yeah, and I think John Artson was just coming through. Yes, but Bobby didn't like John Artson. He should have played him far more, and I never understood why that was. Yeah, I don't know why. I remember John as, yeah, when he was playing for Luton and then he went to Arsenal. John was outstanding. John was so much more than what people look at. John's a big target man and a very tough lad, but he was much better than that. He, he was that, plus he was a very, very good player, you know. And yeah, John should have played a lot more than he did in the early days. Were you there when Gould and Hudson had the wrestle? That's going to ask about that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and we tried to talk Bobby out of it. Because <laughs> I know what, I was playing centre-back with Eric Young and we were playing against Luton and like Eric wasn't shy, you know, we, we were a physical team palace, but we knew not to push it with Arts because he had that switch. And so when Bobby said, right, get a circle around to all the players, and we was like, right, what's he doing here? What's going on here? He said, well, form a circle. And he was standing in the middle of the circle, Bobby. So we all formed a circle. And he said, well, come on, 
called John. You know? And John said, Bobby, I'm not in the mood for this. He did say, I'm not in the mood for this. Bobby's like, come on, Cocker, let's get this out of the way, you and me. And I was thinking, oh, gee, I remember looking, thinking, where's the doc? Where's the doctor? Where's the medical team? Because in about 30 seconds, we may be having to like revive Bobby because oh Arthur God. just lose it in a second. <laughs> To be fair to John, he didn't. He went rigid to John and like Bobby was playing with him, but John caught him, <laughs> caught him in his nose and it was a bit of blood in Bobby's nose. And as soon as that happened, Bobby just went, all right, let's get back to the fiber side. Bear in mind, like <laughs> a week later, we were playing against Italy. So, you know, those are the preparations for the Italian game. The manager and the striker having a, having a straightener. Oh, amazing. In John's book, he says... I started wrestling with him a bit, and even though he was in his 50s, I could tell he was still strong, and the whole thing was just really undignified. I remember John trying to restrain himself. He didn't want to, like... And Bobby was getting into him, but John was like... But John did catch him in the nose. Wow. Bobby had some blood on his nose. Because I remember we all went, whoa! It was like a second from turning really bad. But then it all calmed down and we all started laughing, thank God. But Well, that's how me and Chris sort out misunderstandings <laughs> on this podcast. We meet up in a central London location and, and have a wrestle. <laughs> the legacy of gold continues to this day. I want to ask about Steve Koppel. So you went to Palace, 91. Steve Koppel, just when you joined, he'd just finished third. They'd won the full members club, which was the Zenith Data Systems. Palace were riding such a big high at the time. What was it like to walk into that dressing room with the likes of Ian Wright and Mark Bright? And- Oof, yeah, I was nervous because... You just mentioned two names, Righty and Brighty, who were like synonymous with Crystal Palace success. They were, you know, and the partnership those two guys had, they were excellent. You know, in them days, everybody played 4-4-2 mainly. And Palace were an excellent 4-4-2 team. They're like two centre-backs was Andy Thorne, who was an excellent centre-back with Eric Young. Two midfielders was Jeff Thomas and Andy Gray, who were incredible energy. Both played for England. And then the two strikers were right and bright. And in goal was Nigel Martin, who was an excellent player. Yeah. So the, the whole spine of the Palace team was just superb. As a front two, that's incredible, isn't it? Right and bright. Ah, oh, they were excellent. Yeah, they were. And the two wingers, Eddie McGoldrick, John Salako, were excellent players. Two full backs was Richard Shaw and John Humphrey. So it was a really good Palace team. And I remember arriving, I was in the reserves. Gareth Southgate was in the reserves. Stan Collymore was in the reserves. He'd really assembled a good team, Stevie Coppola. And, and his number two was Alan Smith. And they were a great partnership. They were together 10 years. But Palace at the time was a very, very good team. I can't remember if it was Richard Shaw, John Slarko. One of them was eligible for Wales and said no. I don't know. I don't think it was Shaza, because I'm still friends with Richard. Maybe in Slarko, because he came to Swansea on loan, John. Yes, he did. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. He was an excellent player. And then he had a bad knee injury. And after his knee injury, he never quite, he was still a good player, but he never quite got back to where maybe he would have if he hadn't ever, because it was a cruciate ligament in them days. It was, still is, but in them days, it was touch and go whether he'd play again. But he got back, but before it, he was, uh, well, he was outstanding player, Salago. That's the thing, they're the sort of injuries that now you will definitely recover from, but back then. Now, yeah, six to eight months probably now. In them days, I think he was out for over a year with a cruciate ligament. And then if you remember then, not long after Gaza did his in the... Yeah. Wembley. Yeah. Gaza was out for a year, I think. So they were really bad injuries in them days. And sometimes the guys didn't get back. But John got back. But prior to that injury, he was... I think he played there 10 times for England, John. He was outstanding. He was absolutely outstanding player. Very quick winger, wasn't yeah, he? That left was, foot, uh... right foot, dynamic. Yeah, he was a really good player. 
It's interesting that in that Palace team, you've got Gareth Southgate, future England manager, and yourself, future Wales manager. It's like, what a bunch of leaders at Selhurst Park back then. Yeah, and if you'd have seen us back in them days, Chris, you would have laughed your head off if somebody said you two. Well, maybe not Gareth, because he was more sensible than me. You thought Gareth could make a future manager. Do you think even back then? Yeah, Gareth, he was the only one. He was the only one out of all of us. And even when I was in the Welsh dressing room, I used to room with speeds and... I didn't think speed would be a coach. I didn't think I would be a coach because when you're young anyway, you think you're going to play forever. You never think, okay, my playing career is 10 or 15 years. When you're 20 and you're going to retire at 35, if you're lucky, that's another lifetime. You don't even think, mm. and you never look at each other and think that he could be a potential coach or manager because you're so busy training every day and having the time of your life, basically. Or well, I did anyway. <laughs> you don't think about it. But when I look back, I think Gareth Southgate was always a sensible boy, always an intelligent boy, always carried himself very well, true professional. So yeah, Gareth probably had the tools to go on to become a manager. Speeds, yeah, possibly, more than me. He was more sensible than I was, but it's difficult to tell, but Gareth's done an, an amazing job with England. It's, it's funny as well, when I was when we came back from France, I think he just got the England job and I bumped into him at BBC Awards. And I remember saying to him, because Roy had just been the manager and then Gareth was taken over. And we know Roy's a 4-4-2 man or 4-4-1-1, call it what you want. And I said to Gareth, you want to start looking at three at the back, mate? And I was laughing because we were playing three at the back. <laughs> and then he started playing three at the back. He got it from you. He took my goalkeeping coach. He took my sports psychologist with him. Yeah. I haven't spoke to him since. <laughs> <laughs> he sent me a message on my fifth year. Happy birthday, yeah. <laughs> Thanks for the tips. He's done an amazing job. He's done an amazing job. Yeah. You've had some great managers in your career. So after Palace, you leave Palace in December 95 to go to Blackburn, who were reigning champions at the time. Kenny Dalgleish. Yeah, that was a dressing room littered with quality players. Again, I remember walking into that dressing room. There was like David Batty, Tim Sherwood, Alan Shearer was just on another level. Chris Sutton was a very good player. Tim Flowers. Yeah, he was a great player, Flowers. There was like a list of players. They were just such a good team, you know. Stuart Ripley, Jason Wilcox were two of the best wingers at the time. They were amazing. Colin Hendry still in that team. Colin Hendry. Colin Hendry had three years at Blackburn where he was as good as any centre-back in the Premier League. He was outstanding for two or three years. He was amazing. He really was. And we had a young player, Ian Pearce, who got an injury PC, otherwise he would have ended up going to Man United or someone like that. He was excellent in PS. He's like six foot five, fast, good in the air, good with the ball. And then he had an injury. It's funny, we talk about John Solarco. Sometimes the players come back and they struggle to find that form. A PC went on and a good career. He played for West Ham. I signed him up for him. He's still a good player. But when he was like 20, 21, he was outstanding. He had two years at Blackburn with Colin Henry. They were amazing. I remember walking in that dressing room really. I thought, well, we'll do well to get into this team. It was a fantastic that, team. That Blackburn team had lost 5-0 the week before you joined, right, to Coventry? Well, the funny thing was, Chris, right, I was in a room with Ron Atkinson and I was either going to go to Coventry or I was going to go to Blackburn. And it was two days before Coventry beat Blackburn and Ron was saying to me, you don't want to go to Blackburn, Chris. He said, look, you're a good player. You play for me every week. He said, Blackburn's got an amazing squad. You will play, but you may not play every week. He said, you want to come to Coventry? But it was, it was just transport museum, good rail links. <laughs> yeah. It's a great place to live. <laughs> you know, that was a big part of it. Yeah. But I ended up going to Blackburn. But yeah, they beat Blackburn 5 0. 
<laughs> and I remember thinking, ah, right. <laughs> yeah, Blackburn was a great club. It was a great club. The people up there, are, I was living in the Northwest for about three years and uh, they were great people, really good people. It was John Salak who rejected advances from the FAW. <laughs> it was John, was it? Yeah. Uh, and he was one of those Palace players. That must have been early doors. Yeah, yeah. Because I think he was eligible for Nigeria as well, but he ended up playing for England. That's right, he was. Because I think Nigeria approached him. There's always been a little bit in the back of my mind, as good a player as he was, I've always thought, you passed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would have loved to have played for Wales. <laughs> How dare you? Yeah. How dare you? Yeah. You must have learned an awful lot from Kenny Dalglish, though. Do you know what I learned from Kenny was less is more in a lot of situations where I don't think I've ever heard him raise his voice really, Kenny. Really? No, no, he was... But when he spoke, you couldn't hear a pin drop and... Didn't matter what was going on in the dressing room. If he, when Kenny spoke, everybody just shut up. And actually, it was Ray Hartford who had taken the manager's job, and Kenny was like above Ray in the offices. But he was still a big part. Kenny used to be there in the training every day and everything. And like Ray Hartford was a fantastic coach and a fantastic guy, great guy. But it was just a well-run club. I remember Kenny in the training sessions was still. He must have been forty-five then, Kenny. He just found space and he had time and the ball where you think most players don't, but he was just, his intelligence where the game was incredible, but he was a good guy, Kenny. Because there's an amazing video of Glenn Hoddle trying to coach John Monker. Yeah. Have you yeah. seen this? Yes, I love I it. I haven't, no. And Hoddle, obviously, what a naturally gifted footballer he was. And John Monker was a really good professional, but Glenn Hoddle is Glenn Hoddle. He's showing John Monker to do it, and Monker keeps missing. And Glenn's like, that's okay, that's okay, that's all right. Maybe like this. And then he does it first time, and then John tries it and misses. He's like, that's okay, I don't mind that, I don't mind that. <laughs> and then he does it again. And John misses again. He's like, that's okay, I don't mind that. You're having a go, that's all right. And then he does it again perfectly every <laughs> single time. You're like, it must have been so demoralising. <laughs> So when Kenny got involved, because I, I was talking to people at the Swans and Michael Loudrup used to get involved in training and people like Wayne Routledge, really good players, would say to Michael, why aren't you playing for us? But like, I know you're 48, but why aren't you in the squad? Because <laughs> <laughs> you're the best player we have. Yeah. What's it like then training with an absolute genius like Kenny Dalglish? Is it demoralising? Yeah. It is. <laughs> I just not expected that. It is, no, because I was like 25, I was fit as a fiddle, and I couldn't get near him, you know. And then you end up having mad thoughts going, I'm going to take him out in a minute. <laughs> he's taking the piss out of me, you know what I mean? All the lads are laughing, you know, he's nutmegging you, and he's like, he's sending you the wrong way. And I remember thinking, I'm going to, like, top him in a minute. He's killing me here. And you think, you can't do that, it's Kate Douglas, and he's 25 years older than you, you know. But... He was that good. But also, Jean Tagana, French midfield player, came to Fulham as a coach. Yes. He used to join in the training, and he was ridiculous. He never once gave the ball away. He used to do all the running. He used to win all the running. He was... I remember I was speaking with Lee Clark and Andy Melville again, Kit Simons. We were going, what the fuck? He's taking a piss. We've got to get him drug tested. There's no way is he doing that without any enhancements, right? He was like 45. <laughs> he was unbelievable. He was unbelievable player. And again, never raised his voice, really calm. But then we respected him so much because he, we knew he was a great player for France. But then when he used to join in the training sessions and he was the best player, 
you know, if you're the coach and you're that good, you don't have to say so much because you just get instant, instant respect from all the players. I love that, though. I love that they've still got it. I saw a clip the other day of Romario playing. It's like a Masters game of six aside or something. He is taking the piss out of every <laughs> single player on that pitch. No one yeah. can get near him. No, I bet. I bet. I remember people ask me questions about who's the what fear, the biggest fear you had before you were coming up against a player, a tough player, a hard player. And I never really is didn't scare me so much. Nobody wants to get their nose broken. Nobody likes having that pain, but in them days, it was inevitable. But I was way, way more fear playing against Ian Rush or Ryan Giggs or Dean Saunders or Mark Hughes or or Andy Cole, those players, Alan Shearer, Ian Wright. That was where the fear came because they were so, it embarrassed you, you know? That's where the fear was for me, playing against players that good. And the players that you said, Romario, I've mentioned Sagana, Kenny Daglish, Michael Laudrup, these guys, they just operate on a completely different frequency yeah. to the rest of us. And that's where I had my fear, playing against those players. We used to call them career wreckers because in 90 minutes <laughs> they wreck your career because they'll embarrass you so much. People will always remember it, you know what I mean? John Robertson, who used to play for Forest, the winger, he was, I think, an assistant at Norwich and at Leicester. What a player he was, by the way. Yeah, an amazing player and... And I was talking to Iwan Roberts and Iwan said he'd very rarely got involved, but he did this one time and he was wearing a suit and he was wearing like brogues, like the kind of shoes you'd wear to a wedding. And he tucked his suit trousers into his socks and on the pitch, they're all in boots. And he said they couldn't get near him. He was just amazing. Yeah, I remember watching him. And then I remember speaking with Martin O'Neill about John Robertson. He's a great guy, Robo, great guy. And I remember speaking with Martin O'Neill about him and he said, probably the best player he's played with. Definitely one not nobody could get. And he's one of those, he had that look where he looked like he wasn't involved in the game. He looked a bit lazy. But if you actually study him, he was quite what a player, an amazing player. So who's the best player you played against? I think the best player, not directly against, but in terms of just incredible ability, was the Brazilian boy, Rivaldo. Oh, oh yeah. The longest 90 minutes I ever had was against... Alexandro Del Piero. Oof. That lasted a month, that game for me. <laughs> it was a hard game. The toughest opponent in terms of physicality, it would either be Billy White or Mick Hartford. That wasn't a pleasant experience either. The way players who played against Billy White talk about him. Oof. I was 18, I was playing for Swansea against, I think it was Oxford in a pre-season friendly. The amount of times in my career where I was really hurt, like real, real pain, I could count on one hand. You get knocks and bumps and bruises, but like real pain. And one was against Billy. He came in to me from the side and I remember landing on my neck and I didn't even know where the pain was coming from. It was everywhere. He was standing over me. I was only 18. He was standing over me with a grin on his face and I was petrified. I thought, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Luckily for me, the next time he was playing for Stoke, I was playing for Palace. I remember speaking with Eric Young and me and Young, he was saying, what, Jesus Christ, what are we going to do? He's a nutter. He's a lunatic. And I said to Al, don't anger him. Like, don't jump into him. <laughs> he killed a pair of us. And the next day, the team sheet came in. And what had happened was, he hadn't signed in time for Stoke, Billy, because it was transferred. The transfer deadline was different then. And he wasn't in the squad. Me and Eric Young, it was like we'd scored a goal. He, should have, he was celebrating in the dressing room. We hadn't even kicked the ball yet. He was like, thank Christ for that. Because he was a raving lunatic, Billy. He was a lunatic. And then Mick Hartford was a lunatic 
but he was a really good player. I mean, play for England, Mick. But Mick was, see, Billy was a fighter on the pitch and in the street. Billy was like, he used to have bare knuckle fights and all sorts, Billy. Yeah, the way players talk about him, it's like they were playing against George Foreman or something. He sounds like an absolute maniac. Another level. But Mick, like Mick on the pitch was hard as nails. I don't think Mick was a fighter off the pitch. Everybody talks about Mick half and about his physicality, but he was a very, very good player also. You've mentioned Eric Young a few times. I must have watched pretty much every home game he played for Wales, Eric Young. Obviously, you played alongside him for Palace as well. Did you ever say to him, Eric, please, can you just change that headband once? Because <laughs> it's absolutely disgusting. You know the reason for it? No. His eyebrows there, and he had like a load of scar tissue cut. And like, even if the ball hit him, they would open up. Oh, right. What? And so he used to cover his eyebrows in Vaseline and then he'd have his headband on. Nowadays, that would be a Nike headband and it would he'd be being paid for it. But it just looked like an old bit of towel that he so strapped himself. <laughs> it was disgusting. Oh, and it stunk. Yeah, I mean, he was like, yeah. <laughs> I used to room with him as well, youngie, sometimes. And uh, he would, and, and the more you say to him, come on, Al, he'd do it on purpose. you like, wave it in front of your face because he knew he was disgusting. <laughs> but he was a good player, Eric, really good defender, really good defender. Yeah. You met so many characters through your career towards the tail end. You signed for Fulham. You actually, after Blackburn, you dropped down a couple of divisions. Mohamed Al-Fayed, he's taken over <laughs> Fulham. He's got this vision to get them back into the Premier League. What was the first time you met Mohamed Al-Fayed? What was he like? Well, Mohamed was, I think, because of who he is or who he was, some stories I couldn't tell you. I'd be looking over the shoulder for the rest of my life. <laughs> Other stories, yeah. He was a very colourful character, very generous but he was one of them where, of course, he was a very successful man. And you see why when you meet him and you talk to him, because he always had a vision and a goal. And like when he arrived at Fulham, he's like, we'll be in the Premier League in five years. And everybody said, yeah, right. Okay, of course. You know, and even if you got lots of money, it's still hard to do it, but he did it. But sometimes he'd, you know, I'd have conversations with him and I'd have to tell him, I'd be lying to him, to his face. I'd have to tell barefaced lies because he'd tell me something a week ago and I'd go and do it and it wouldn't work. And then a week later, we'd have the meeting and he'd say, what, what the hell did you do? And I'd be like, you fucking told me to do it. I, in my head, I was thought that, I wouldn't tell yeah. him. And I'd have to make a lie up and say, it was this, that, and the other. But this thing that he'd tell me to do that I did that didn't work, then he'd blame me. I'd accept the blame because I couldn't tell him it was your idea. So it was lots of that going on, lots of mind games. But what he was good at, he didn't, well, we know, you know that he didn't care about what outside people thought of whatever situation he was in. He'd just do what he wanted to do. And if he had something to say, he'd say it. You knew where you were with him. He let you work. He'd give you the reins. I was only 32 and he get he gave me the job because he was basically sticking his fingers up to everybody else, the establishment. He was doing what he wanted to do. I was just in the right place at the right time. Super lucky to get the job. He did it because I was young and no one else was giving a 32-year-old a Premier League job. He was that character, but then he backed me and he let me work. He was brilliant. But there was no boundaries with Mohammed in terms of, I couldn't say, please, chairman, don't come in the dressing room today because of whatever. Yeah. He was coming in and he was walking in with Michael Jackson or he was walking in with so mad. Tony Curtis, the famous actor. Or <laughs> What, before you play in Charlton? In a sort of- yeah. And we walked in with Michael Jackson, right? And we, it was after the game. We were all standing in our towels, ready to go in the shower. Kevin Keegan's assistant, or was it Frank Sibley, came in and said, 
Cookie called me, Cookie, tell the boys, don't go in the shower yet. The chairman's coming with a guest. And we were like, oh, here we go, here we go. He walks in with Michael Jackson, right? I remember looking, going, is that, is that Michael Jackson? <laughs> I thought, that's not Michael Jackson. This is like a, someone dressed like my, anybody was Michael Jackson. A couple of the lads took their towels off, put the towels back on. And then Michael was walking around the dressing room, shaking hands with everybody in his glove. <laughs> which was a bit weird. <laughs> It was weird. It was really weird. It was one of them days where we all still say, did that Did that day actually happen to us? Did Mohammed Al-Fayyad actually say that just before we went in there? And, he, and everybody says, yeah, we all remember him saying that. And it's just bizarre. bizarre. I'll tell you one thing, though. The tiled floors of a changing room at a football ground, perfect Off environment for a moonwalk. Yeah. All the lads would taking a piss one day they were all doing the moonwalk in the shower and all that and because Michael was standing there like because of how the, the Fulham dressing room was then the shower was on the right as you're walking out the shower's on the right I can see Michael standing in the doorway with Mohammed that some of the lads were in the shower doing a robot and doing the moonwalk it was a shambles honestly it was like Jesus Christ have some respect for Christ's sake you know the biggest pop star in the world I mean what was he like because He's not known for being a massive football fan. No, but he had massive feet. <laughs> you know that trick he does where he leans forward like that? Yeah. Well, yeah, no wonder it works for him. He's, he's size 20s. His feet are massive. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh, man. It was a bit strange. It was all a bit strange. Yeah. Chris, we've got a few subscriber questions. The first question we've got actually is from Jack Bean. He's like, "Have you got any great stories about Mohammed Al Fayed?" I mean, you've just told oh, us right. about two. Right. Is there any, anything left in the set list? <laughs> I got one or two more, but like I said earlier, Chris, I, I don't think I can uh, put that in the public domain. I don't think. <laughs> what were you there when the Michael Jackson statue was built? I just gone a couple of years after that he built the statue. Yeah, did you ever see the statue? Oh, yeah. terrible! Yeah. <laughs> Didn't look Awful. like him. It didn't look so anything weird. like him. It had been coloured in with colouring pens or something. Oh, it was a shocker, yeah. And somebody bought it afterwards. I think somebody actually bought yeah. it. Yeah. She's not there now, thank God. It's in a museum, someone told me. Oh, is it? Yeah, it's in a museum somewhere. A museum of what? <laughs> yeah, it was exactly, yeah. what? Yeah. <laughs> One question from Sal Tariq. You mentioned there that I think it was the Fulham assistant called you Cookie. Where did the nickname Cookie come from? Obviously, Wikipedia suggests... It was from your early days. Yeah, Cookie Monster. Yeah, um, yeah. My mates used to call me because I used to like. I mean, like I, I love chocolate, but in my early days, I used to eat a lot of cakes and chocolate. I was a big boy, so they used to call me the Cookie Monster. But then, <laughs> what I did was, when I was about twenty, I think it was twenty. Yeah, me and another player. His name was David Dowdy, who I came up with as a kid, and he's a good little player, David, who was playing for Swansea. They were about twenty, and we we had a a few beers and we've we got tiny little tattoos and I got cookie tattooed the top of my leg. So, of course, everybody went... What, a picture of a cookie or the word cookie? The word cookie. So you haven't got like a biscuit drawn on the top of your thigh? <laughs> no, I haven't, no. That's next. That's coming up. No, I, you've just given me an idea there. <laughs> what a big biscuit on your back. <laughs> Listen, the size of my thighs now, mate, it'll be a packet of biscuits so that you can see it. <laughs> To be honest, but imagine going to a tattoo bar and asking for a packet of biscuits. 
that's how Cookie uh, stuck then every club I went to. That's how it stuck. One more from Lee Sanders. He wants to know, would you have preferred to qualify for an international tournament with Wales as a player than as a manager? That's a good question. Oh, it's a great question. Nobody's ever asked me that. So the best days are your playing days. The best days are the playing days. I had lots of disappointments with Wales, but I remember when we won a few games and the feeling of that, the feeling of standing there singing the national anthem. I always say that story where you feel like just on that one day, you are the best in your position for your country. And that feeling is the pride involved in that is incredible. So I think to do it as a player would have just, it would have been indescribable. Look, as a manager, I can't describe to you the fulfillment that gave me. And, for us, we're a small country. There's only three and a half million of us. But when we get it right and we have that feeling of togetherness, it's incredible to experience that and to take it where it went. It's really hard for me to say I preferred it as a player, even though I preferred my playing days to my manager's days. Manager's the closest thing. But being involved with it and having so much of the responsibility of it, I think it'd be difficult for me to say, I would prefer it as a player because when I was a manager, I had a lot to do with it, obviously, and a lot of decisions to make. So I felt a lot of that responsibility. Equally, when it goes wrong, you have that responsibility. But when it goes right and it was Wales, probably wouldn't change that. I don't think I'd change that. Also, that USA 94 qualification, the Paul Bowden penalty, do you think if Wales qualify in 94, does it kind of reset the timeline of Welsh football a little bit? That magnificent European tournament that you have, does that all kind of shift forward kind of 18 years or whatever? I think any qualification, you have to treat it in isolation. And I think, I remember when we qualified, I remember saying afterwards, we won't qualify every campaign because we just don't have a big enough pool of players. And if we have a bit of bad luck or injuries, we're going to be affected. But as long as we're maybe qualifying three and five, three and six, and that is a job for Welsh football, they won't qualify every campaign because it's too much for us, I think. It's too size of our country. But as long as we're competitive and we're there or thereabouts, we can never be like another 30, 40 years where we're nowhere near or now and again we promise and we don't deliver. We've got to be there or thereabouts. We're going to have a campaign where we're not so good, but then as long as we bounce back and we start well in the next campaign, everybody that plays for Wales, that's what the job is for them. To carry the torch, not from the, the lads from 2016, but they're carrying a torch for Wales and they've got to make sure that's their responsibility with that or with thereabouts. As a kid, I never thought I'd see a better player than Ian Rush. And Nev as well. Yeah. And then obviously Ryan came along and I thought, okay, that's it. I'm not, I'm not going to see a better Welsh player than <laughs> Ryan Giggs. That's the level. That's You can't beat that. Yeah. And obviously then Gareth Bale came along and he is once in a, uh, he's the greatest ever. But you're just hoping, and it is true for all countries to an extent, like it's Rooney and then it's Kane and there was Bellingham. And you're looking at Bellingham, you're thinking, Christ, I mean, this guy's yeah. unreal. So you're just hoping that there's just some boy in Neath or, or Canaravon or Merth yeah. or Cardiff or whatever. Young lad on the wank bank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just kicking a ball against the garage door. Who's going to be the next Gareth Bale? And he's going to be the one we're all going to get excited about. Well, he'll be there. He will be there for sure. Because one thing we have done, even though we're a small nation, is you've mentioned those players, Ian Rush, and then like before Rashi, you had 
probably a little bit before then, you went to John Charles, who I never saw enough of John. I saw some clips and he looked awesome. My yeah. father's an Irishman. My father's a Dublin. He's a dub, my dad, but loved his football. And he talked about John Charles. He, he said he was an amazing player. Yeah, and Cliff Jones with Tottenham and Ivor Orchard. Yeah, Cliff Jones, yeah. Ivor Orchard, my father said Ivor Orchard was on another level. So what we have done as a small country is continuously churned out amazing players. Well, Cliff is in his late 80s and he still looks like he could play. Have you seen him on social media? <laughs> I haven't seen Cliffy for a while, no. Incredible. In lockdown, he was doing um, exercise videos. Was he? Because he'd won the double with Tottenham and then he had to, because there was no money in football in those days, he had to become a PE teacher. So he was in lockdown. He was 85 doing star jumps and push-ups and bicep curls and burpees, all sorts. Amazing. Ah, he's a legend. Yeah, legend. We always end this podcast on one final question, which is this. I'm going to give you the option to go back to when Terry Yorath brings you to Swansea City and you can relive your whole career from that point onwards all over again. Would you take that opportunity? Uh, Yeah, yeah. I changed my car crash because it ended my career, but that was my own fault. But other than that, do you know what? I was the luckiest man in the world to have a career in professional football at any level let alone I was lucky to play at the top level with some of the best players and I played against the best players and I wouldn't know. When I look back on my career, I don't have uh, any feeling of, oh, I'm, you know, I think I missed out there. I could have done that. I was, I had the best time, best experiences of work with the best people. I'd like to actually just have a sit down with Terry because I haven't seen him for a long time. Buy him a bit of dinner and a, and a glass of whiskey. I know he likes a glass of whiskey, Terry. I just like to spend a bit of time with him just to say thank you to him personally because he really did set me on a path and what came after came after, but I wouldn't change anything about my career. I wouldn't. Not even a quick word in the year of Paul Bowden on the 17th of November, 1993. <laughs> Paul Bowden, Paul Listen, people miss penalties, but he took one for Swindon at the weekend after that and scored. And he said, I think he said, I hope that makes up for the one I was just, and I was like, that's never going to make up for the one you just missed, bud. <laughs> <laughs> but but he's a good lad, bud. He's a good coach as well, bud. He's been with the young, the young yeah. he was with the young. But uh, yeah, look, he stepped up. I think people was members them saying, Tadino, why didn't you take the penalty? But Bods always took the penalties and he always scored. So yeah, he'd replaced Dino actually because Dino had missed a couple. He had a great left foot, Paul Borden, super left foot, and he never missed. But unfortunately, he missed that day. Oh, Chris, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure to rattle through it. This has been an absolute joy. Thank you so much, mate. I really enjoyed this. Pleasure, Alex. Good to talk to you, mate. And you, Chris. Pleasure. There you go. Oh, man. With his glove... Is gonna that phrase will be meaningful to me for the rest of my life. I'll never forget that. <laughs> That's now what I think of when I think of Michael Jackson with his glove. He was great because, like a lot of nineties players, he's a bit of a character and he's got great stories. But also because he's he's remained relevant because he's you know he's he's managed and he was managing till relatively recently. He kind of straddles both camps, really. So you you can talk to him about modern football and he'll be very knowledgeable. But also, he comes from a time where football was so different. It's really, really interesting. So he's he was a great guest. I thoroughly enjoyed yeah, talking I to love. Chris Also, Cole. way more of a lad than I was expecting. A kind of guy you could have a go of a pint with. I wasn't necessarily expecting that. Oh, yeah, that. definitely. I didn't see that coming. Also very handsome. 
Oh, so handsome. I've got a, I didn't say this because I thought it'd be weird, but uh, I've got a picture of him sipping from a cup of coffee uh, during a press conference. <laughs> Print, he's, printed onto a massive canvas well, no, above the he, fireplace. But he's, <laughs> but he's wearing a very moddy uh, button-up top. And because he's holding, obviously the mods used to drink in coffee houses, yeah. he just looks like he signed an R&B band in about 1964. Yeah. And he looks so cool. It was my screensaver for a long time. And I've got kids. It it should have been them. <laughs> he was, I was chatting to, I was with uh, James Collins, the ginger pillow, who was part of the Wales 2016 team. And he said, I said, he's a good looking man and he's much more of a lad. And he said, there were so many good looking lads in that Wales team like when he was playing. He had obviously Ryan Giggs. But also the likes of Gary Speed was good looking. Gary Speed, very handsome. Yeah, yeah. A lot of handsome blokes. Yeah, I think Joe Allen is handsome. I think Aaron Ramsey's very handsome. <laughs> I mean, there you go. I mean, if you want, if you want a podcast on handsome footballers, <laughs> I'm I'm straight. I just I just I just admire attractive people. <laughs> There you go. Chris Coleman, if you want even more from that interview, you can join the Quickly Kevin fan club. Sign up at anotherslice.com forward slash Quickly Kevin and on your Apple podcast app. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and are looking for a new one, do feel free to check out mine and Ellis's new history podcast, Oh What a Time, also featuring Quickly Kevin alumni Tom Crane, in which we take a sideways comedic look at history and also ask questions like, could you go in a time machine, take Pep Guardiola's tactics and apply them in the 1940s? and win everything that's the kind of show it is it's called oh what a time do feel free to check it out now we'll see you next week and this week's outro comes courtesy of charlie partington who says cheerio stefano iranio we'll see you next week go let it let it let over the top